0: Hello, my name is Latif al-Maktoum. I was born on December 5, 1985. Um, my mom is Huria Ahmed Lamara. She's from Algeria. My father is the prime minister of UAE and uh, the ruler of Dubai, Mohammed bin Rashid Said al-Maktoum. In 2018, a princess from Dubai sneaked over to a friend's apartment and made a video recording. It could be the last video I make. Pretty soon, I'm going to be leaving somehow. She was 32 years old, and she was planning an escape. She would hide in the trunk of a car, launch a dinghy, and reach a yacht by jet ski. Then she'd sail to India or Sri Lanka and fly to the United States to claim asylum. I'm 99% positive it will work. And if it doesn't, then this video can help me, because all my father cares about is his reputation. He will kill people to protect his own reputation. If the escape plan failed, her friends were instructed to release the video. So this video could save my life. And if you are watching this video, it's not such a good thing. Either I'm
1: dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation.
0: You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, a senior editor at The New Yorker. Heidi Blake is an investigative journalist and staff writer at The New Yorker. She's been reporting on the princesses of Dubai for a long time. How long was it, Heidi? It's about seven months. Seven months. Thank you so much for being here, Heidi. I'm really excited to talk about this story. It's like one of the more cinematic and haunting pieces I've read in the magazine in a long time. Wow. Thank you so much for having me. So, for, for our listeners who haven't read it yet, can you briefly tell us about Princess Latifah of Dubai and how she
1: wound up on a yacht full of cockroaches headed for India? So, sheik Al-Latifa is, is one of more than 25 children um, of Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum, who is the, the ruler of Dubai and the Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates. He's married about six wives. They've collectively borne him dozens of children. And Latifa and her sister Shamza were two of the more rebellious of his daughters. Um, they both kind of chafed against the constraints of, of royal womanhood in Dubai. They wanted to, to travel and to study and, and to drive, and they didn't like cover covering up with the traditional Abaya. Um, and they they kind of made their feelings known about this and, and clashed with their father, particularly Shamsa, who's four years older than Latifa. Um, and Shamsa ran away herself in, in 2000 on a trip to the family's country house in England. And she herself was captured and forcibly returned to Dubai where she was sedated and imprisoned for years in the palace. Um, that was the sort of inciting event that led Latifa to spend more than half her life hatching plans to escape her father, both to try to save herself from the brutality of his regime and his control and also to try to get help for Shamza, her sister, who for, for years and years languished in the palace under heavy sedation and, and in captivity.
0: And can you talk a little bit more about the brutality that the sisters and that the princesses in general face just because I, I feel like when you know people think of Dubai, they think of extravagant wealth kind of excessiveness. And when you think of princesses, you imagine that they would be partaking in that. And so I'm wondering what is it exactly that they wanted and what did their experiences look like and why is
1: it so awful being in their
0: situation?
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, there's no doubt that these women grew up in conditions of extraordinary privilege, but also of extraordinary constraint. Um, so, you know, for Latifa, um, she was actually taken away from her mother as a baby along with her brother. Um, and they were given as gifts to their aunt who didn't have children of her own. And so she was raised not knowing who her real mother and sisters were in a in her aunt's palace where she described in, in really harrowing letters being subjected to awful treatment and on one occasion being beaten until her body was covered with welts and being trapped in her room and, and just spending her days looking out of the window, dreaming of being free and watching the people outside. They were in a palace, you know, she describes being sort of photographed, dressed up in, you know, in, in fine clothes and jewellery and being allowed to play with, with pets and puppies and things for these kinds of photo shoots that that gave the appearance that she was living this very privileged life, but that actually once the photographers went away, she would be sent back to her room and, and all of those props and toys and adornments would be taken away. And, you know, it was really as they matured towards womanhood, that they began to clash more and more with their father. Latifa discovered who her real family were when she was about ten and and Shamsa, her older sister, went and, and challenged the family and demanded that Latifa and their brother be allowed to come home. And that seems like the first time that Shamsa really sort of mounted a rebellion, and she was successful. She she persuaded the family to let her brother and sister come back. Um, but then it was sort of after that, as Shamsa got towards her late teens and started to ask to go to university, that she was told that you know she wasn't going to be allowed to continue her studies. And Latifa describes in one letter her father repeatedly punching Shamsa in the head for interrupting him during one of these, um, these these arguments over her studies, and it was. Soon after that, that Shamsa decided she wanted to escape. And then once Shamsa had been captured and had been returned to Dubai and was living in awful conditions in the palace, being drugged, being kept in comunicado, Latifa, um, aged 16, attempted to run away herself to try to get help for Shamsa. And and that was when her abuse really started. So she was captured. She was kept in in a prison for three and a half years, She was brutally beaten. Um, Her soles of her feet would be battered with a heavy wooden cane until the bones were broken. She was kept without fresh clothes or soap or even a toothbrush, kept in the dark for days at a time in solitary confinement. And this went on for years and years until eventually it appears that her father and the family believed that they'd broken her and began to allow her a measure of freedom again. And so she kind of returned to life within royal circles Um, And little did they know that as soon as she got out, she immediately began plotting her next escape attempt.
0: So as you say in the piece, I mean, some of these abuses were already publicly known um, by the time that you started reporting this story. And um, in Latifa's case, she had put out these videos kind of describing her conditions. Part of the story was already public, but I'm wondering what aspects of it you know, made you interested in investigating it further? Like, what were you sort of hoping to find when you started reporting this piece? And then what did you find that kind of went beyond what was already publicly known about the runaway princesses?
1: Yeah, so I followed Latifa's story, you know, along with many people, you know, after she was first captured aboard the yacht that she escaped on in 2018 – and, you know, and then when years later, the prison videos were released that showed her being held captive inside this prison villa. And I, you know, I was fascinated by the contrast between Dubai's public statements about Latifa that she was happy and, and being cared for by her family, and, and what she seemed to be saying in these videos, which was that she was being held against her will, and she considered herself a hostage. What I really wanted to understand was sort of what Latifa's state of mind was through this period, what was really going on behind the scenes during her time in captivity. And in the run-up to this escape attempt. You know, Dubai had worked very hard to portray her as a vulnerable woman who maybe suffered from mental ill health, um, who had kind of personal difficulties, and to sort of characterise her as an unreliable narrator of her own life. And then, you know, the, the enduring mystery of this story is what happened to Latifa towards the end of her imprisonment, because she went from... Publishing these videos in which she made very bold statements about her father and about her desire to live a totally free life. And then suddenly appearing in this string of what looked like somewhat staged photographs in which she appears in various cities around the world with friends and companions, apparently at liberty, and yet has not spoken out or said anything publicly um, in her own words, in her own voice, to disavow the statements that she made previously. And so I just wanted to understand what has happened here to, to bring this woman who was so determined to escape and to live a free life to this point where she appears to be cooperating with efforts by her father and his government to portray her as as free under conditions that she previously had said were abhorrent to her. And so I I wanted to, to kind of get as much information as I could about Latifa and her life and her intentions in the lead up to the escape and her feelings about her confinement while she was in prison and, you know, right up to the point where she suddenly starts appearing in these, these photographs um, that are being used by Dubai to portray her now as, as being free.
0: And how did you get that information? Because I, I, in the piece, I think you say that you, you never actually speak to Latifa directly. But I mean, she's quoted throughout these incredible detailed quotes about her day to day life. And so I'm wondering what sources you were drawing on if you weren't able to go directly to Latifa herself.
1: It wasn't possible to speak to Latifa directly. So I instead drew on hundreds and hundreds of letters um, and emails and text messages, videos and audio messages that she'd shared with friends and supporters over the course of about a decade as she planned this escape um, from Dubai. And then as she spent years in prison after her second escape attempt. And they really gave an extraordinary um, level of insight into her state of mind and into the the sort of conditions of of her life. She actually went to great lengths to record a huge amount of biographical detail about her childhood, about her experiences in Dubai, about the, the desperation that led her to go to such extreme lengths to try to get away from her father I was astonished as I read it. It was a real uh, treasure trove of information about about Latifa and about this voice that was really being silenced. And And that felt powerful for me because she, she said in the video that she recorded before she escaped and that she had asked supporters to make sure was released if she was captured, that she was running away to claim a life where she didn't have to be silenced anymore, where she could tell the world about what had happened to her and to her sister. And obviously in the end, that voice has been silenced. But I, I hope that by sharing the details that she so painstakingly recorded in these many letters and emails and texts and, and audio messages, that some of that important story can now be, be brought to light.
0: No, absolutely. You're able to tell it so vividly using this, this written material. Um, so I'm wondering if you could sort of finish the story of her attempted escape and explain, you know, what went wrong and basically what then led to her being imprisoned for so long.
1: So in around 2010, Latifa had had regained a measure of freedom. She'd been released from prison uh, and her sister Shamsa had also been released from prison and the two of them were living in their, their mother's house. Shamsa remained, by Latifa's account, under heavy sedation and constantly guarded by guards and chaperones and Latifa herself was not able to travel anywhere unchaperoned and was constantly surveilled. She was able to pursue certain leisure activities, she was able to go shopping with chaperones. And so she began to try to use that sort of latitude to start planning her next escape attempt. And she was just absolutely determined to try to get away, to get help for Shamsa, um, to publicise their situation and, and to claim her life, was the phrase that she used repeatedly. And so she, in in about 2010, she recruited a woman named Tina Jakiainen, who was a Finnish uh, martial arts instructor who was working in Dubai. And Atifa asked her to come and give her kaipura instructions. So she wanted to learn this martial art as she began to try to ready herself physically for the demands of this very daring escape that she tried to pull off. And around the same time, she recruited another accomplice who was a a French-American um, marine engineer and yachtsman named Hervé Jaubert. And he, um, he himself had previously fled Dubai, uh, where he was accused of embezzlement. He strongly denies those charges. But he had managed to scuba dive um, off the coast and then and then meet a yacht that sailed him to, to freedom. And he wrote a book about it called Escape from Dubai, which Latifa uh, obtained a copy of and kind of used as like a playbook for her own escape. And she wrote to him and asked him for his help. Uh, And they spent seven years corresponding in detail about her plans to replicate that escape while she trained in extreme sports, in in scuba diving, in skydiving, in martial arts and got to a point where she felt strong enough and agile enough and prepared to try to pull this whole thing off. She also obtained a fake passport during this time. She smuggled cash to a network of conspirators who, you know, met her in in secluded spots around Dubai and she'd managed to evade her chaperone for a few minutes to go and hand off a bundle of cash to procure all the equipment that was that was required and And so it was an an incredibly elaborate operation planned over many, many years with a great deal of care by Latifa before ultimately um, Yauhainen, her friend, drove her over the border to Oman. They then took a dinghy out to the yacht, which met them in in international waters. And they were far out in the middle of the Arabian Sea when they were eventually stormed by armed commandos who'd been sent by Sheikh Mohammed to capture her and bring her back to Dubai. Wow.
0: I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about um, Sheikh Mohammed and just sort of the um, larger political context for all of this. Because, I mean, as you say in the story, he's sort of known for, you know, the statements he's made about wanting to make life better for women and just kind of this um, cultural reimagining of the UAE. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about how the country has been shaped by him sort of like economically, culturally, and then how, um, you know, this disparity between – his public image and comments about women and then how he treats his daughters.
1: Yeah, Sheikh Mohammed is a, a fascinating figure in all of this. You know, he is really credited, you know, with being the the modernizing genius who almost single-handedly transformed Dubai from, from a tiny coastal port, as it was when he was born in 1949, to the, the sort of glittering modern power that it is today. And part of that has been his efforts to counter the perception of Dubai as a repressive autocracy and and particularly in regards to the rights of women to try to characterize himself as a real champion of gender equality in the Middle East. Um, And so his government have passed a series of laws that do things like guarantee women equal pay for equal work, guarantee women a certain amount of representation in boardrooms. He's elevated nine women to cabinet positions in his own government. Um, There have been some improvements to the law around domestic violence and other crimes against women. But experts in in Gulf politics say that those measures are often really window dressing and that actually... In reality, women in Dubai continue to occupy a very precarious position, where they are only able to to work or to marry, or at times to travel with the permission of, of male guardians. They live under guardianship, um, and where their situation is is in many ways controlled by the men who hold sway over their lives, and there are. Many Emirati women who are living much more emancipated lives and who are able to work and to ostensibly make their own choices about who they marry and where they travel. But those are going to be cases where they have a much more liberal male guardian. And so ultimately that measure of freedom is still in the gift of the patriarch. But if if that's withheld, there's no recourse for those women. And in in the case of of Latifa and Shanza and other women in the royal circle, you can see that very clearly that, um, you know, women in the royal circle are often elevated as emblems of female advancement. Um, and yet, when they step out of line, and when they fail to carry the honour for the family in the way that they're expected to do, you know, those missteps are punished with astonishing brutality. One expert I spoke to said to me that rebellions among the royal circle really provoke a politically dangerous question um, among Sheikh Muhammad's subjects. You know, that causes people to ask, well, if you can't even control your own family, how can you really tell us what to do? And that some of these extreme actions against Shamsa, against Latifa, against his youngest wife, Princess Haya, and other women in the family are really designed to show... You know, you want to watch me control my own family? Well, here you go. This is what that looks like. And it's a message to the broader populace. And so for women in Dubai and in, in the royal family in particular, while they may be seen to be living lives of what might look from the outside like extraordinary privilege, actually they're occupying a really wrenching dual role and they're they're living very precariously.
0: And so for Latifa and Shamza, what did freedom? look like, I guess? Like, what were they specifically hoping for? Because I feel like it's described in, you know, various different ways, and maybe they're not even quite sure what it means. But is it not having a male guardian? Is it having the ability to finish an education? I mean, what was it exactly that they were hoping to find?
1: That's a really great question. I mean, for both of them, for both Shamsa and Latifa, a big part of this was wanting to pursue an education. Um, You know, Shamsa clashed with her father because she wanted to to go to college and he he didn't want to allow her to do that. Latifa had always wanted to study medicine and, and wasn't allowed to pursue that ambition. For Shamsa, she was eighteen and and she was kind of young and, and heady in the way an eighteen year old is and she wanted to explore and to travel and you know she, when she when she escaped from her family, she kind of went on the run in London and stayed in hostels and found a friend to stay with an elephant and castle and just kind of like was a teenager for a couple of months you know on the loose in a big city um in Latifa's case she she talked in her escape video about just wanting to wake up in the morning and think I can do whatever I want today I can go wherever I want I have all the choices in the world and she talked very explicitly in her letters about really being very willing to abandon all of the trappings of, of royal life and, and the kind of privilege that she had as a as a shaker in Dubai. Um, she she talked about being happy, flipping burgers for the rest of her life, if she if it meant that she could just make her own choices and just wake up and, and go where she wanted to go on any given day. So I think really it was about that level of personal choice, just choosing for themselves what it was they did with their lives.
0: Coming up, you'll hear more from Heidi Blake about Latifah's father's powerful international connections and how he evaded accountability. There are multiple instances, you know, in the story of um, the women sort of coming into contact with the international community in different ways, um, you know, sort of making contact with people in London or um, there's a you know, moment where Latifa meets with the UN Commissioner on Human Rights. And I'm wondering... Um, How is it that so much of this was able to play out publicly and yet there was seemingly very little intervention from, you know, international groups from
1: being kidnapped in London? Absolutely. That, I think, is the, the most scandalous Truth at the heart of this story is the way in which the the mechanisms and the institutions that are supposed to uphold the rule of law and to protect and preserve basic human rights seem to fall away if you are a member of a royal household. Um, you know, for Shamsa, she was kidnapped off the street in broad daylight in the United Kingdom she had the wherewithal even as a as a teenager to have found and 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 instructed her own lawyer while she was on the run and then even even while being abducted she managed somehow to obtain a phone and to to contact him and report her abduction and even then once the matter was you know came to the attention of the police it was just decided that let's just leave this, let's let sleeping dogs lie. There were notes made about the friendly relations between the UK and the UAE. And then again, Shamsa from inside prison managed to obtain an illicit cell phone and contact the police herself to ask them to investigate. And there wasn't an effort to investigate her kidnap, but when it went through the foreign office, suddenly the case stalled and was was dropped. And so, Despite the fact that there's an live allegation of kidnap um there was nothing done to intervene to protect Shamza and you know the detective who investigated her disappearance said that that had been a source of frustration and dismay to him for the past 18 years that he felt the government had blocked his investigation now this 18 year old you know young young woman is you know a woman in her 40s who is you know has lost such a huge chunk of her life to incarceration because the authorities failed to do anything to protect her. And the the story was, you know, very similar for Latifa when when she ultimately, you know, attempted again to escape and managed to, you know, draw the international community's attention to her plight via her escape video. You know, that the, the UN asked UAE some questions about her well-being and they were asked to provide proof of life, but ultimately no international institution managed to intervene in any way that helped to improve her situation. You know, Sheikh Mohammed was able to imprison and to torture two of his daughters with impunity. And, you know, nothing was done to help them.
0: I mean, I was just surprised by um, I mean, Ivanka Trump and Theresa May were at the Global Women's Forum in Dubai talking about the Sheikh and, you know, advancements for women in the country. I mean, not only does it seem like the situations of these princesses were ignored, but it seems like there's like almost like an active cover up happening.
1: It's quite extraordinary, you know, the, the extent to which Western and global politicians are willing to play into the perception of Dubai and other Gulf states as, as being somewhat progressive in regards to women's rights, despite the reality on the ground. And, you know, um, while Ivanka Trump and Theresa May were in Dubai at the Global Women's Forum, you know, praising Sheikh Mohammed for his commitment to women's rights, his own daughter Latifa was you know, a few blocks away being held in prison for, for disobeying him, for attempting to secure her own freedom. And, you know, she was actually texting her supporters on her on her secret cell phone during this event saying, this is a circus. These people are helping to cover up what's happening to me. And, you know, I, I mean, I think that, that obviously um, the UAE and other Gulf states are huge investors in the USA, in the UK, and in other Western and global economies. And they've managed to secure a place as such an important strategic ally um, for many of these other governments that, you know, that they do seem to be able to act with with some impunity um, when it comes to their treatment of women and other oppressed groups.
0: Even if Western governments haven't been openly acknowledging the situation in the the way that you might expect. Given the fact that some of this story has, you know, sort of gone around and people have seen Latifa's videos and whatnot. I mean, has there been backlash from, I mean, even just like from the average tourist who no longer has much of an interest in going to, to Dubai because they've heard what's going on there? Or does it seem like people are just kind of ignoring all of this across the board?
1: There was a a point in the story uh, where it really seemed like the political mood might be turning and that was after um, Sheikh Mohammed's youngest wife, Princess Haya, had actually successfully escaped to the UK and managed to claim court protection for herself and her children. And she, through the through the Britain's High Court, managed to bring a legal case against Sheikh Mohammed, in which the judge made findings of fact that he had subjected her to appalling abuse and had also kidnapped and imprisoned both Shamsa and Latifa. And that was a really big breakthrough moment in their sort of efforts to draw the world's attention to their ill treatment. Um, And shortly after that, it was reported that the Queen, uh, a big long-standing friend of Sheikh Mohammed, had cancelled his invitation to join her, as he very often did, in the royal box at Ascot. And Britain's Prime Minister then, Boris Johnson, and its Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, broke their silence over Latifa's treatment. and Both called for UAE to provide proof of life. The UN also called for concrete proof of life to establish that Latifa um, was well. Um, and the, it was at that point, as those various pressures were mounting up, that all of a sudden Latifa appeared in the first of these Instagram posts where she was photographed at the Dubai Mall with a couple of other women who said, Said that they were enjoying a, a you know social evening with her, and and so I think that was the response that Sheikh Mohammed's government felt was necessary in response to that that political pressure since. Since they've been able to produce these photographs that appear to show Latifah at liberty, um, albeit she's never spoken out herself to confirm that, this seems to have eased any reputational difficulties that Sheikh Mohammed might have faced. So, you know, shortly after those pictures were produced, um, the Biden administration approved a major arms deal with UAE, a huge green energy collaboration. They called UAE a a major strategic partner. You know, a prominent member of the UAE government was named director of Interpol. Dubai was named the host of the cop twenty. Summit, world leaders poured into the Dubai Expo. You know th- there was just a kind of a complete release of any of that political pressure as soon as they were able to at least ostensibly demonstrate that Latifa was you know out and about and not not any longer being held twenty four seven in captivity.
0: Beyond the, you know, the abuses against Latifah, there are other abuses that you uncover in the piece, like the young women being brought to the royal family to um, act as sex workers. And I'm wondering, I feel like I haven't seen that reported elsewhere. Like, is that an aspect of the story that people were aware of, that these abuses were going beyond just, you know, the daughters of the sheikh, but that there are these other women who are being subjected to this kind of treatment? And then the impunity that you mentioned earlier, I mean, has that kind of you know, people were talking about the princesses. Are there other women who have been abused who are still waiting for some form of justice?
1: One of the the aspects of this story that was completely fresh terrain, you know, in terms of the reporting of it, was the allegations around Sheikh Mohammed's use of sex workers. And this was something that I, I learned about Um, actually, several years ago, I was, you know, I was interviewing a a police detective about a different story. And he told me um, that one of the the things that had stuck with him his whole career was an incident in 2001, where a sex worker had escaped from Sheikh Mohammed's Long Cross estate, which happens to be the same place that Shamsa escaped from, and had alleged that she'd been held for days in the property and, and repeatedly raped. And uh, that that he had set about to try and investigate this, but then had been told by his superiors to just leave the case alone, and that the whole thing had been settled at a government to government level, and that this woman had been paid for her time, and in you know in the words he quoted to me from one official uh, that you know that therefore her Majesty's favourite sport, horse racing, uh, could continue in this country because Sheikh Mohammed is a huge investor in British horse racing. And so that had really stuck with me. And actually, when Latifa's story broke, I remembered you know, that story and went back to that same uh, police source and then kind of reported it out and was able to make contact with a, a, a range of former staffers who worked for Sheikh Mohammed for years at his British residences. And who described how sex workers were brought in large groups night after night to his British homes when he and his entourage were in residence. And some of them... The, the former drivers who worked with Sheikh Mohammed and other staffers described these women being very distressed by what was happening to them inside the house. They couldn't say what exactly was going on. They didn't witness that directly and they don't know exactly who was involved. But some of these women you know, sobbed all the way back to London after being brought to these properties Um On one occasion, one of these women allegedly was was chased from the house by a member of Sheikh Mohammed's staff with a stick and, and beaten in the bushes until she was covered with marks and bruises. And so there was a pattern of brutal treatment of women that appeared to be occurring in Britain, you know, as well as in in the Emirates, that felt like an important part of the story too, especially given the way that, you know, there was an allegation there that the British authorities had chosen not to investigate fully because of their relationship with the Dubai government. I should say at this point, Sheikh Mohammed denies any allegations of imprisoning his daughters, of torturing them, of sexual exploitation or any of the other allegations of wrongdoing in the story. And and the the British authorities say that they always investigated all of these allegations fully and, and fairly. But, you know, certainly it appeared to me that there was a clear pattern of allegations of women being very severely mistreated that did not appear to have been given the proper official attention.
0: So in terms of the the international response and sort of like how confounding it's been, I'm wondering what role you think sexism or racism or both might have played in this. I mean, I, I wonder if this is the this, this sort of thing where you hear about these abuses of women in the UAE and um, just like the average Westerner just kind of chalks it up to, um, well, that's just how things are in the Middle East, as opposed to responding with the outrage that you would expect for someone to respond with if this kind of thing were happening, you know, in the United States.
1: I think that's. I, I think that gets right to the heart of it. You know, many of the British officials who I spoke to about the British government inaction in relation to these cases would say to me, well, but these are cultural issues. We just don't want to get involved in these kinds of questions of family honour. You know, to dismiss this kind of horrendous abuse... And false imprisonment of these women seems to me to utterly dehumanize them. I just don't see any legitimate grounds on which this kind of systemic abuse can be chalked up to cultural issues. Latifa and Shamsa both talked about being forcibly drugged, about being beaten, you know, about being held for years against their will in, in conditions which are clearly cruel and inhuman. And, you know, for the for the authorities in, in Britain um, and, and other countries to turn a blind eye to that on the basis that, well, these women are from the Middle East and, and it's just a cultural issue. When some of these crimes occurred on British soil, you know, strikes me as as deeply hypocritical and, and indefensible.
0: So you mentioned earlier that Latifa is, is no longer imprisoned and that we we still haven't heard from her, but, you know, the government is sort of giving every sign that... You know, her situation is is fine now. And I'm wondering if you can just give us a sense of um, what is the latest with her and what do you um, think has sort of happened with her?
1: One of the things that really struck me reading so much of Latifa's correspondence was that for years during her incarceration, she'd resisted efforts by her father's officials to persuade her to cooperate with what she called propaganda. They wanted to take photos of her that would make it appear that she was free to try to kind of assuage international concerns about her well-being. And she was very clear-eyed about that. She knew exactly what they were trying to do. And she strongly resisted participating in that. And she was prepared to stay in prison rather than participate. in in any such efforts to kind of gloss over her appalling ill treatment. You know, she would say, I am not going to allow them to erase years of of torture and dehumanisation that I've suffered. I will not cooperate.
0: I was so struck by the part of the piece where it's, they offer to take her out and um, I think like go shopping so that they can photograph it. And she's really tempted by it because she hasn't been outside in, in, in you know in public in so long. But she has to say no because, yeah, it would just get, give everyone the incorrect impression of what's been happening to her. I mean, it was just so awful.
1: Right, exactly. And, you know, she talked about feeling as though she was dying a very slow death by suffocation because they wouldn't even allow her to crack a window open to breathe a bit of fresh air, you know. And yet she was she had the the grit and the resolve to say no to these offers that she could go out and buy books, you know, as long as they could photograph her apparently at liberty. And so, you know, it's an extraordinary story of the strength and endurance of the human spirit under the most, you know, appalling duress. And yet, at the end, some months after Latifa completely lost contact with her supporters, they had a secret channel to her via a cell phone that they'd managed to smuggle into her prison villa, you know, suddenly she is appearing in the very sorts of photographs that she so strongly resisted participating in for so long, and... That obviously creates a very ambiguous picture. She hasn't contacted any of her former supporters directly. And their question is, if she's really free, why doesn't she just send us a single text message to say, look, I'm fine. You can stop worrying about me. Um, That hasn't happened. You know, I made many efforts to speak with her directly and all of them were rebuffed. I just received letters from various law firms who say they represent her. And after I sent her a detailed letter with lots of questions about her situation and the materials I'd reviewed, I got a letter from a law firm just saying she won't speak and then the same day a new Instagram account appeared in Latifa's name and posted a photograph of her apparently in Austria which said that she's free and living her own life and she understands why it might appear that she's being controlled given everything that's happened but that that's not true that she's fine now and that was confirmed to me by a woman who was for many years a royal employee and who was a member of the team of chaperones and minders who were uh, were part of, of Shamsa's team while she was being held in Communicado. And she told me that Latifa now drives herself around Dubai and lives in her own residence and is able to travel. But, it you know, that th- there remains a big question here, which is that if she's really absolutely at liberty to express herself and to speak out, why has she not communicated that to her, you know, longtime friends and supporters? Why is she not able to speak publicly, film a video, give an interview, all things that she's been prepared to do in the past. Just to, to confirm that, you know, there, there, are, there are some big question marks here about the extent to which she remains under duress. Um, and while clearly, you know, the Emirati government strongly deny that, you know, I, I think that it's important that the international community keeps asking those questions.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to ask if you feel like at the end of the reporting process, if you um, you would sort of answered the, the the initial question that you would set out to answer, which is, um, you know, sort of what is Latifah's current state of mind? Why is it that she has gone silent? Is she free? Why is it that she seemingly made the choice to cooperate with the very people who she had spent, you know, years refusing to cooperate with? Had she just sort of given up or did her circumstances change somehow? Um, I, I'm wondering if you... Where you have sort of landed with that, I know it's kind of an un- an unknowable, but um if by the end of the piece you would sort of landed in a certain place.
1: What I learned from reading Latifa's communications and and listening to the audio she recorded and the videos that she she made really was a very strong sense of her unbelievable tenacity and determination to escape. Um, how clear-eyed she was about that over many years and how unwavering she was in her disgust at her father's treatment of of her and of other women in the family and her desire to claim her own life and she said very clearly in one letter that she wanted to to live exist and die as a fully emancipated person that she would accept no other outcome And those statements were so strong and so unerring throughout years and years and years of correspondence that it's very striking to me that she can have had such a dramatic change of heart. That being said, what is also very clear from the correspondence is that towards the end, before she lost contact with the supporters, uh, you know, she was under increasing pressure. And it seemed at times like her nerve was beginning to crack. You know, She was beginning to worry about whether she was betraying her father. One of her supporters said to me he felt like she was developing Stockholm Syndrome.
0: Yeah, there's a part where she worries about his health, her father's health right
1: exactly and you know, she begins to suddenly get kind of cold feet and begin to worry and begin not to want any more publicity you know and and this is around a time that she's starting to report that that a psychiatrist is being sent in with the, with her father's guards to try to pressure her to relent um you know that they are uh, really stepping up the psychological abuse of her in in various ways and she just becomes increasingly desperate and is saying i just can't I can't cope. You know, I've I've never felt this hopeless. And she does begin to contemplate doing some sort of deal, that she would live quietly, that she would make the campaign stop, that she'd never speak out again, um, if they would just at least allow her out of the prison villa and and allow her to have a phone and have some measure of freedom. And so it is conceivable to me that she has done that kind of a deal. Certainly that's something that she was contemplating, you know, but if, if that is the case, that's clearly the product of years and years of duress and Coercion, And, you know, she's not living the life that she originally wanted to pursue for herself. Yeah, no, if she is free now, it's absolutely a different definition of freedom
0: than the one that she articulates toward um, the beginning of of the piece. Well, well, thank you so much for taking us through this um, absolutely harrowing (laughs) journey. Um, It's an incredible piece of reporting.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Heidi Blake is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read her story, The Fugitive Princesses of Dubai, in this week's magazine or online now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Sidney Cobb and Catherine Winter. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.